Hey guys, it's Tony. I'm here to talk to you about Awaken Conference. Now, Awaken is a young adult gathering in Charlotte, North Carolina from January 31st to February 2nd, 2020. And it's meant to help you recharge your spiritual life and connect with a community that you can grow your faith alongside. Now, this year's presenters include a killer lineup with Caleb Isley of Humans of Adventism and, of course, a friend of the podcast. He's been on a few episodes. Kim Cove, a licensed counselor, and Randy Ban, the creative producer at Nike World Headquarters. The keynotes will be brought by Ben Lundquist of the Rise and Lead podcast, uh, a good friend of mine and an amazing speaker. Trust me, guys, you will not want to miss out. And Absurdity will be there. So me and Becker, uh, you get, get to see us if you come out. Uh, would love to come and talk to you. We absolutely think that this is something you're going to want to come and see. Speaking of, if you enter the code Absurdity at awakennc.com, that's Absurdity, A-B-S-U-R-D-I-T-Y, at awakennc.com, you're going to get a 10% discount. We'd love to see you there. This is absolutely something that we support, and we think that Awaken is a part of the growing church movement that we want to see moving forward. Once again, if you enter code absurdity at awakennc.com, you'll get a 10% discount off the initial price. Love to see you guys there. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Absurdity, another reverb edition as we are in Henry Johnson's apartment. Today is just me and Henry Johnson. You may remember him from episode 40, the Secular versus Sacred Smackdown. That episode was our most downloaded for um, for a number of weeks, actually, for actually for a few months. But it was recently dethroned by our GC episode, thank you, Norway, and our NAD episode. And so Henry is back with a vengeance to reclaim his spot at the top of our analytics. And here's what's cool. Now, this this episode is being released December 31. So Happy New Year to everyone if you're celebrating tonight and you're listening to this on your way to some New Year's party, in which case this is not exactly hype music to get you ready for the New Year. But whatever, go for it. Uh, Tomorrow, January 1, is Henry's official start date as the new young adult director for the Carolina Conference. Last time he was on... He was the associate pastor of the Spartanburg Seventh-day Adventist Church, and now I do not call it a promotion. In fact, I believe that he has moved into a position of greater servanthood uh, to serve our churches and to serve um, young adults in general and families in, in how can we work together and build community and connect young adults in the Carolina Conference to Jesus and connect them more realistically. So, um, Henry, I'm glad you're back. Thank you for being on. It's great to be back, and it's great to know that the GC and NAD have thwarted my reign of the Absurdity Podcast. It, it took, here's the thing though, it took the world church <laughs> working together to dethrone you. That's pretty big. The system was working against me, and now I'm part of that system. I mean, the uh. next, at the, time of, at the time of at least recording this, the next lowest episode is 700 downloads less than you. So you've got, you've got quite a little bit of buffer here. I, on, I, on the, I will admit, I was shocked I even became your top download because I listened to this podcast. I'm like, oh, man, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wait, people were listening. I think it's your titles, man. I th- honestly, you know what I think it is? I think it's uh, people don't like listening to me. 
And whenever you're on the show, I don't talk a lot because I learned so much from you and you have this wealth of information. I think that's really what it is. Oh, <laughs> oh flattery will get you nowhere on this topic. Uh, well, that's okay. Flattery got me everywhere in this friendship, so I will, I will take it. So today, uh, we are jumping into a topic that is hotly debated, hotly contested, has been so throughout the history of the church, which is music. And we're not doing that from the framework of, is it contemporary versus hymnals and traditional? We're not jumping in from a uh, pragmatic standpoint. We're, I think, jumping in this from a more uh, precedence standpoint. Um, so today, this is not your average music conversation. Uh, but we are, and I want to clarify this, because as is tradition on this show, we always have a running definition or operative definition for our uh, for our conversation so that when we talk about whatever the word is, whatever the idea is, we know exactly what lane we're in. So today we're talking about music, and we're not talking about the music you listen to in your car. We're not talking about the music you listen to in your house or while you're in the shower and singing shamelessly. All right, we're not, that is actually more along the lines of the first episode you came on for, which is secular versus sacred. Today we are talking about corporate worship music. That is what we're talking about, the music that you hear, sing, experience in church. So we're going to talk about that from a biblical standpoint and from a historical standpoint. And I don't think, I mean, Henry, maybe you've experienced something different. I don't think I've ever encountered this conversation from that perspective. Not in a church context, definitely so. Yeah, the biblical the, the biblical arguments have been there, I think, a while. I don't think we're going to cover a whole ton of new ground there necessarily that, that some, I think in some form or another, someone has heard every biblical argument one way or the other, but maybe you have something that, that I've never heard. Well, right. Well, no, I mean, that's not, that's not where I'm going there. I'm, I'm saying I, I've heard debates about the historicity of a certain development in music or something else. You're hearing that at the university level and usually in the music departments, not in a theolo- not in a theology department. In other words, it's, it's interesting that it only tends to be, non-musicians debating the theology of music or what music does or does not do, and then the trained sphere of those that have actually spent their life studying music or had some sort of major involvement in it or, you know, having the debate somewhere else, and the church is kind of left out of it completely. So, Okay, so let's, currently someone's listening to this, hearing that and going, great, so now I'm listening to two pastors talk about uh, music, which is filling into that problem. So let's go ahead and correct that real quick. Henry, what is your background with music? What is your experience with, with music? Now, interestingly enough, ministry was not what I ever intended to go into. I should say at least pastoral ministry. My original obsession was actually music, and particularly, this might scare some listeners, go, oh no, I think I know where he's going to go with it, but classical music was, was my focus. It still is a great passion of mine. I'm probably the only person, at least in this area, I know at my age that has season tickets to the symphony. And I go with great regularity. It's a great stress relief for me. And uh, I, I was a music major originally in my undergrad at Columbia Union College up there in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is now Washington Adventist University. Anyway, but it was there, the gateway to service, man. So, but yes, I was a music major and specialized in piano performance and symphonic conducting was where I was was headed. And so obviously music courses and composition and everything, that was a huge deal. Had to take many classes with that. Started playing the piano when I was seven and had to take private lessons during every week of my life, summer, fall, winter, whatever, from that point forward until I was 20. 
And then I was in the college scene as that point, and then I had instructors, obviously, at the college level, and I still play today, pianos, symphonies, all that. So my original background was in music. I don't profess to be the all-seeing knowledge of music, but yes, I, I spent a lot of time in historical debates about music or the development of certain genres and things like that. Yeah, so as Henry is sitting on his couch saying this, there's a, there's a piano literally, what, five feet behind him. Um, he has a music box from, like, what, the 1920s? Yeah, early, it's actually or, or a early? 1916 Victrola gramophone. So basically, if anyone, you know, turntables are coming back into style, you know, when you think about records and vinyl, I know that's starting to make a comeback, but if you can imagine vinyl now, you think of the digital records, you drop the little arm on the, the disc and it goes... This was where it all started. This was back the turn of the 20th century. And this was when it's literally a soundboard. And you bought these at piano companies. And it's projecting the audio waves right back out into this box. And mm. it's it's really fascinating bit of history to have. And definitely much cheaper to have now, because most people don't know what they are, don't care about them, than they were then. They were $125 in 1916 when you could buy them. But the average monthly salary in the United States was $11 for a middle-class job. So to put that in perspective, you know, that's a ridiculous amount of money you would have been paying for something like that. That's so, like, I mean, what, I don't know what the average monthly salary is right now, but I mean, yeah, I'm not certain. Let's assume that 4000 is the average. It's not. I I'm going to say that's, that's, a, not, that's a nice paycheck. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's like 50K a year. Um, okay, let's, let's go lower. Let's say $2,000. Um, then that's still... 12 grand, 15 grand for one of those. Like, right. Uh, you know, comparing that, that. It'd be like buying rate. a car, but yeah. you're having that just to sit in your house and listen to music. Yeah. It's a far cry from, you know, an iPod or the iPhone <laughs> or your. It's much less portable, too. This thing is like four feet tall and three feet deep. So. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> no they weigh a lot. Most of the time, it was an affluent family in the community would own one, and you see actually images of where they would pull it out on their porch. And play it, and people in the community would all come to their yard and gather to enjoy listening to these things. Because the individual disc is fascinating. Each and every gramophone record prior to the late 20s, each record is unique. Because the way they recorded these is they had people that were paid, musicians that were paid to do this. They sat in a big building with the recording equipment. And they would have to perform it 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 times. And every performance is an individual record. Wow. So, actually, when you look at the serial numbers on them, the lower the serial number, the more they're worth because the people were excited to sing it at take four. At take 70, they're kind of like, wah, 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 wah. you know, they're <laughs> just trying to rush through it yeah. to be done with this because they're done singing some Irish ballad for the 900th time wow. to make their recordings. That's crazy. I didn't know that. That's insane. So, yeah, that, that little back and forth there gives you some idea of uh, Henry's uh, kind of obsession with music, his passion with music. And if you've heard the Secular versus Sacred episode, then you know Henry's uh, passion for history as well. And so today we're going to try and hit both of those. But let's go ahead and first of all, let's talk a bit about this from the biblical perspective. I think that's the way we're going to segment this out. And the reason I want to bring up the biblical perspective is this is the one that uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about. The historical perspective, no one even knows it. But the, but the biblical perspective, everyone has an opinion on it. So um, I think this is a good place to start. Remember, we're not talking about contemporary versus hymns. We are talking about corporate worship music in general. So this isn't like 
I'm not here, I don't think Henry's here to tell you that your that the that the style of music you prefer is evil and of the devil. Um that's not our purpose here. Our purpose is to have a conversation about this. So, Henry, I'm going to let you kind of guide the conversation from here on out, mainly because you have all the notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's. Um, so yeah, let's let's start this. What what is the what is the biblical approach or biblical perspective on corporate worship music? All right. So the interesting thing is is that music is contentious as an issue as it tends to be in the modern church life, and as it we'll see later in history has always been contentious. The idea is that music came very quick in the Bible narrative, extremely quick. And I'm not just talking about where you find later in the Bible narrative about, you know, the heavens and what was going on and maybe things that from an Adventist perspective we call the great controversy or angel choirs or anything like that. I'm not talking about insights in the Bible to pre-creation. I'm talking about just the human story itself. When you start in Genesis and begin reading, it only takes four chapters to touch on music. You literally hit the creation story, the fall of humanity, and then music comes up in the very next chapter. Wait, music is in Genesis 4? Yes, music is in Genesis 4. I did not, I, I don't think I ever realized this. Where, I don't think I've ever even thought about where music starts in the biblical narrative, but, but do you have that reference? Yes, I do. Actually, it starts in Genesis 4, verses 21 and 22, and I'll read that quickly. This is actually, you're, you're dealing with Lamech, who's someone you might have heard before. This is the guy that's all like bold and like, I will, you know, well, Cain was cursed, right? Because you have Cain and Abel at the beginning of chapter four and that whole fiasco, the first murder in the Bible. And there's this kind of sad descendant named Lamech who's kind of prideful and all that. But in that context, he gets a wife. He actually takes several wives, but he has a wife and she has three kids. And the Bible says this, very interesting, starting in verse 20. Ada, which was this particular wife, gave birth to Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And as for Zillah, that's the other wife Lamech took, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. So and here's the point that's going on here. Jubal's the middle brother, and you know the Bible's rushing through this, so anytime it pauses on something, this is quite... You know, we should sit up and listen. Jubal's middle brother, his profession is listed as music, right? His first brother was a farmer, right? And the other was a toolmaker. And the middle one is a musician. Everybody, his specific thing was he was the father of all the people that were involved in the lyre and the pipes and, and singing and all that. And so here's the thing that's fascinating right off the bat in Genesis is that in Genesis 1 and 2, all the material needs of the world have been met, right? All your food, your oxygen, your water supplies, all of these things. And we know that other things have been situated, but we get sidetracked by the fact that, you know, Adam and Eve go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and hand the world over to, you know, Lucifer, just really epic fail. And then when you start moving into now humanity is starting to populate and take over the world, we see that material needs are not enough for God but aesthetic and creativity is important to God, and he automatically starts these trains of aesthetics through these three siblings. Basically, the idea of managing the material world, being a toolmaker or being a farmer or, yes, even being a musician. So music is one of the key aesthetic pleasures and necessities of the human experience, and it starts right off in Genesis 4. Huh. 
Wow. So yeah, it, it really does source those three main things out. You've got the fine arts, you've got the, the things necessary for livelihood, and then you've got the tools that make livelihood a whole lot easier. Yeah. Um, and, you know, using to build houses or whatever. So this, that's, that's interesting. I don't think I've actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, I've definitely read Genesis through, but I don't think I've ever really paused on Genesis 4 or even really considered any of that before. And that's really interesting. Like, I, I feel like I could just preach a sermon series just on that oh, alone. Oh, man, you just could, like, because it's amazing. If we ever wonder why music is one of the things that everyone, whether, you know, religious or not religiously inclined, this kind of goes back to secular versus sacred, you know, then go yeah. back and listen to that later. But the point is this, is this is one of the fundamental topics of human existence, yeah. So no wonder it matters to people. No wonder it can become as contentious as it does in a worship context especially because you're merging two spheres of the human consciousness, theology and music, and both are vital to the human expression of life itself. Yeah. I mean, in theology, the study of God, right, that's literally what the, what, what the term means. Like, that's important whether you believe in God or not. Theology is your, is your belief and your study of God. And if that led you to the conclusion of no God, your music is still going to interact with that. In fact, there's a song I grew up with um, that I used to love because I used to grow up. I grew up in uh, the 90s and early 2000s music, 2000 to 2004. Like, that's my sweet spot for, like, old alternative rock bands. So think early Breaking Benjamin, Crossfade. Uh, perfect circle bands like that right hey, now you're an all-star um yeah smash mouth i think that was that was yeah uh, uh, well, that, that was really um, big when i was in academy that was everyone was playing but that. there was there was this song i remember this there was this song i used to love it but i never used to know the lyrics it was, it's judith by a perfect circle that's the song and i remember listening to that song growing up all the time i loved it i, I jammed out to it all the time and then one day in college i decided i heard that song again i hadn't heard it in years and i was like what are the lyrics to this? I don't even know. Yeah, it turns out the lead singer wrote it because his mother had died of had been diagnosed with cancer and she refused medical treatment for it because she was one of those not Christian scientists but um but she was of the belief that she could pray it away basically. Have enough faith, God will heal her, so be it. And he wrote that song out of anger toward God and toward religion. And so that that actually like that song is his interaction with his beliefs and study about God. And let me put it this way. It's not safe for the little ears. Um, and those lyrics, if you look them up, um, I, I'll put it this way. Even I have a line. I don't listen to that song <laughs> uh, anymore. But, but I want to make that case because theology and music are both intertwined in the human, human experience, regardless of where your beliefs are about God or what style of music you prefer. Right. I mean, music is a language. If you talk to any musician that's taken any sort of training at any level in any genre, they're going to realize that it is a way of expressing thought. Just like speaking in a language is how we're expressing what we think about something, it's inevitable that music would touch so many areas of life, including theology, because what you believe about anything is going to have to be expressed, and music is a language that tends to have an ability to express things in a deeper and almost more subconscious level than just audible wording or the written word can do absolutely absolutely so all right so let's keep going here um you've you've established genesis 4 where else does the bible take us regarding music all right well another principle that comes up which kind of segues into what we were just segues from what we were just saying is the fact that even israel ancient israel 
understood the vital importance of it as a language for communicating national and individual thought, so much so, actually, that they, the Levites, the Levitical order, and this was, this was a subset of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, that had a special place in the Israel economy, which basically was they handed they handled spiritual things, particularly dealing with the tabernacle and later the temple. And this comes from a story even out of Exodus, where even at the base of Sinai, where God himself has descended in the mountain and talking, all Israel decides to basically have a holy cow experience and worship this golden calf and do this mass orgy at the base of the mountain. And when Moses comes down and basically asks for the children of Israel to repent, the Levites are the only ones that really rallied to his side when given the opportunity to make a stand for God and to reject this kind of behavior. And from that point, they kind of become plan B for God. And that's a different topic for another time because God's original intention we see there in Exodus at Sinai was he wanted the priesthood of all believers. That's a whole different topic where he wanted all Israel involved in dealing with this, but since Israel abdicated that responsibility right there in his very presence and was like, nah, we're going to go for this utterly ridiculous, you know, fraud, this you know, utterly ridiculous gal. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I got you. Yeah, okay, just making sure. Right. And, and so the Levites basically is the only ones willing to make that public stand, get honored with being the ones that will then be responsible for that. And so with that in mind that Israel viewed the Levites as basically your spiritual realm, your, your kind of religious circle. Uh, they viewed music as so vital that the Levites were actually assigned musical control and authority in Israel as a sacred duty. Hmm. That was actually the job of the Levites was to basically be your, your music control board, and not in the sense of like censoring stuff, but in managing it and even creating it. And so we see in First Chronicles 23, uh, 3 to 5, that the Levites are assigned the task of music. And, and actually, it's so important that just a few chapters before that, in chapter 15, verses 16 to 24, that an orchestra and a choir was on the payroll of the Levites to help move the ark whenever it went somewhere. Wow. So, you know, nowadays when you think of classical music, you think of the, the London Philharmonic, or the, you know, or the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, or the Boston Pops, or this kind of thing. Can you imagine if we if we labeled them the same way by commission that in Israel there would have been the Ark Symphony Orchestra or something? Like, I mean, its only point was to be constructed and called upon to move the Ark. Talk about marching band with, like, high stakes, right? Like, that's... Exactly. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade has nothing on... <laughs> <laughs> like, you've got to move this thing. It's like God's presence has got to move, and... Better have some good musicians in front, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, and so, so I mean, it, it was so so important to the liturgical order that at one point we realized more than ten percent of the priests are assigned to music roles. Wow, when you start adding up in Chronicles all of the designation of the priests, over ten percent of them, their only job was music related, hmm. which is just chaos to think about. Because even how many. I don't actually know this number. I hadn't thought about this ahead of time. How many pastors are there in the NAD? Um, like employed. I want to say 4,000. 4,000. So that would mean 10% of 4,000. Know, yeah. So that would be yeah, all like full time paid musicians. Full time. Full time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That, but, <laughs> but here's the thing, though. That's just in the North American division. You're talking about like one 
specific community. Yeah. So this would be like, you know, bringing this down to like your city or your state conference or something like that. Like that, that that's how specific this gets to. Yeah, we're all we're 10% of the employees are full-time dealing with music. Yeah. And I, we don't I, even I doubt have we one. go anywhere close. I no. mean, yeah, I, I mean The only way we get musicians paid is if they're local hires. If they're local hires and if the church usually is big enough to have a budget for it and they view it as a priority. Yeah. And that's that's a big ask. Basically, that's a big if. It is, but it's not unheard of even in modern in modern religious context. So for example, oh, no, not at all. Well, and I'm not just talking about like mega churches, which people would think, okay, maybe they pay their, their praise bands and things like that. I do happen to know that in the Methodist communion, so in the United Methodist Church here in North America, that when one of their churches gets large enough that it could warrant a second full-time clergy member. So, you know, we think when a church gets big enough, you can have a pastor and then an associate pastor or then a worship pastor. You know, we start adding things in. In the Methodist communion, they will sooner hire a full-time music of minister before they will hire an associate pastor. Wow. That's so in other words, really, as soon as really the church cool, yeah. is big enough, the first priority is a, is a minister, and as soon as they have more money for someone, they get a full-time music minister before they'll start hiring a youth pastor or somebody else because they view music as that vital yeah. to the service. Gotcha. Okay. So let's keep moving here, mainly because we could we could easily we could go on forever. Yeah, yeah, we could. I th- there is potential that this turns into a two parter, which everyone will know when this episode is released. Yes, but. yes, they will know. All right. So next, again, staying in Chronicles for those who you know would have their Bibles out listening to this or their apps and, and flipping through it again in First Chronicles sixteen and verse thirty seven, we see that because the Levites controlled it, they also had criteria for those that were engaging in it, and the musicians were to be spiritual and engaged in diligent preparation for the musical tasks they were doing for society. So, in other words, I mean, you see that in chapter 15 as well, 12 and 14, but they were paid since they're Levites, and they're thus receiving tithe monies. That's another thing to think about, that tithe monies was used to fund musicians. Uh, So, they received the tithe but they had to be spiritual and prepared. So in other words, it's not that any, you know, lots of people can be involved in music, but the idea was the ones they were, they were finding people that were trained, knew what they were doing, but the criteria was not just, are you good at music? It's, are you spiritual? And that's fascinating to me too, is that that was the two criteria. You had to have some knowledge of what you're doing. This couldn't just be, you know, sister whoever in church thinks they have the gift of music, but nobody in their church happens to have the gift of listening to them. And, you know, they cannot spend... That's, that's some people have the gift of tongues, but there's no interpreter for that music. That's, that's, <laughs> oh, oh, there's the interpreter of tone deaf. And yeah, anyway, yeah. but anyway, so, so right, they had to have some ability, but more than that, it wasn't just, can you do it? Do, is your primary concern, do you have a walk with God that's going to influence your talent? Yeah. And, and that was an important designation for the Levites to, to be aware of that. And, and I think, well, I mean, we'll get into that later, but I think that's something important also to consider in modern church context, whether we're going to, no matter what the genre is or what your particular worship style is in your church, is are we, are we focusing on people just because they have talent, which sometimes I think a lot of churches don't even pass that threshold. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I get that some churches don't have access to people that do know what they're doing. But at, at the same time, then once you have people that do, are, are, they, are they spiritual? Like, is there a walk that's clearly there? 
Uh, and that, that that comes into importance for the Bible. And is that walk toward, walking toward God or away from him? <laughs> well, that's also true. Yeah. Are they on their way out or are they on their way in? I guess, you know, are they are they going in front of the ark or are they running away from it? Exactly. I guess exactly. in the context of the Levites. And then finally, just kind of hitting the major points overall of, again, how important the Bible views it. Then you get into the New Testament era and you have Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 which most people would at first think, well, what does that have to do with music? Well, it actually has to do with music or anything, for that matter. And Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, the the church context on any topic, which then us obviously include music, is that whatever we do with music in a corporate setting cannot be merely limited to the narrow interests or preferences of either just the musicians or the congregation to the expense of the musicians or just the local pastor or lay leader or whoever that may be. The, the, the general principle should be when we are engaging in corporate worship, because again, we're not talking about your, like you said, your personal preference for what you listen to during the week or whatever you do. That, that's up to you. But we're talking in a corporate setting, your goal cannot be, what do I want to the exclusion of all others? What do I enjoy to the exclusion of all others? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, am I feeling good? And, you know, who cares about the other 10 people that were not blessed kind of thing? There has to be an understanding that there's more than me present, and therefore we should be targeting with music more than me present. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, and and so, so here's what we've hit. We've hit that music is integral to the human experience, it is a priority in God's people, but also that it falls under the category of this is not, a inter, this is not an independently decided uh, topic or issue, but this is one that is made in consideration for uh, the entire corporate body that yeah. you are worshiping alongside. And so I think those are, those are some good uh, principles for for addressing music, which is A, it's necessary because it's going to be a part of your life whether you whether it's in church or out of church. B, it is welcome, very much uh, artistic expression is welcome in God's kingdom to the point that they were literally on payroll in the Old Testament for this. Yeah. And then um and then lastly, yeah, that that you wouldn't only be looking at what works for you, but working for others. And and it's and it's fantastic that that is a key principle for music because that's a principle that's been easily jettisoned when dealing with music. Oh yeah. And that kind of brings us, I think it's a good segue into the history of corporate worship and debates had within religious communities about it. Because as I was preparing for this podcast, when we talked about it and I started digging out my old music textbooks and other things, (laughs) trying to, trying to find sources on this, it's interesting that conflict over music in church is not a contemporary phenomenon. That shouldn't hopefully surprise anybody. But the history goes back as far as the earliest reference I found to something horrible happening in a religious community fighting over the topic of music was the 1200s, mm. like A.D. So like way back mm. into the, the Middle Ages. And, and in his history of English church music, Dr. Andrew Gant um, I believe is at Oxford, he, he wrote a book called O oh, Sing Unto the Lord, and he's dealing with music history. And in it, he references that in the 1200s in the, in the English city of Gastonbury, 
three monks were murdered by the parishioners of the church because they tried to introduce new chants in the liturgy. Well, that takes the worship wars to a brand new level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like three, it'd be like three pastors just getting murdered because they tried to add a new hymn or a new praise song to the worship lineup. And, and we're not even talking about music the way we understand it. This is the old Gregorian chanting. Like, this was very limited. Like, you had key monks were the ones that controlled it. The congregation isn't even singing. This is some chant where they're up in the nave of the, the church and the priest is doing something, the bishop is doing something, and they are echoing, they, they are adding some sort of lyrical combination to that experience, which is actually, if you've never heard that before, it, it, if you just listen to a chant by itself, like if you find audio recordings on iTunes or something like that, sometimes they can seem, they're obviously simplistic, and sometimes you don't go, I, you can listen to them and go, I don't get how that would be powerful, but I, I can tell you, I've changed my mind about that when I traveled to Ukraine some some years ago. And in Kiev, there is a center of the Orthodox faith. We think of the Eastern Orthodox faith. And funny that I'd be referencing Ukraine, because I think at the time that we're recording this, there's actually not just dealing with music, but there's a greater religious debate that the Orthodox churches in Ukraine have just split from the Russian Orthodox church and, uh, you know, there's a lot of fighting now over that between the governments because it's being used as a pawn, basically, of politics. Yeah. Religion being used as a pawn of politics. Go figure. That's never happened. That's before. never happened no, whatsoever. But anyway, th- but I, th- I think that the church I was there at in Kiev, the big monastery there that I'm, I'm referencing in this story, is probably now going to become the new center of the Ukrainian Orthodox community. Fascinatingly enough, huh. uh, as right. I know. Yeah. But when I, w- I was there, in Orthodox liturgy, there's still a lot of monk choirs and and musical responses to whatever the priest is doing in the liturgy. And I remember I went to a service there because I walked in. I, I mean, you imagine these huge golden domes, kind of that Orthodox Eastern architecture and, and candles everywhere and all that. And the priest was waving the incense and, and he was giving this, I assume it was a Bible reading, my Ukrainian, like not being a proficient language that I can speak. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure what he was actually talking about. He could have, I mean, you know, so that being aside, but they began doing some chanting as as part of that. And to hear those voices, because the choir was actually hidden behind behind the main altar there. And so you didn't see them, but you heard them as the as their music started bouncing off of the walls and coming down on where the, the congregation was standing, because you don't sit in an Orthodox service. There's no chairs or anything. And to hear it echoing in there and the acoustics in there, it, it, it sent chills down your spine. It was actually quite, I can see in the right setting it being a very powerful thing for people that don't have the ability to have gramophone records or CD players or whatever. They don't hear music during the week and you come into a service and, and you hear this well-orchestrated music coming. I mean, it would be quite powerful. That can powerful. only be heard in that setting. That can only be heard in that setting. It's not accessible. Yeah, it's not accessible. You went to the church, especially in the 1200s, you know. At, I mean, that was one of like only two places you could hear music, you know, basically the playhouse or the church. That was, that's where you went. And, and so you can imagine people cared about it. And apparently so much so they killed these three friars for deciding to, uh, you know, these monks, I guess not friars, monks, for trying to change it up. That's just crazy to me. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so if you've ever been upset that, that you know, if, if someone's ever gotten mad at you over your music choices, 
Count yourself lucky that you didn't live <laughs> that this wasn't happening in the 1200s. Yeah, because yeah, you would have been you would have been gone. And and complaints, by the way, about worship being, I guess you could say, as entertainment, right? Because we hear a lot of that in in modern context. Well, you're just doing that because it's entertaining or whatever, and it's not about worship. And we can we can get into debates about that later. But the idea is that's not a contemporary phenomenon either, right? Because in the 12th century, uh, Alaret Relu, so a, a, a Frenchman of, of some repute in the in the church at that time, was horrified by, and this is translated quotes out of out of the French, the quote histronic gesticulations. End quote. That is that's a mouthful, right there. I don't histronic gesticulations of a singer that was singing in a worship service he was attending. And he said that as this singer was singing, quote, the congregation was left awestruck, stupefied, and marveling at the saucy gestures of the singers, so much so that you would think they had come not into an oratory, but into a theater, end quote. So basically, whenever you've heard someone try and have a, a solo... That's what this is talking about. But, yeah, basically yeah. he's saying that whoever this was singing, and I have no idea that the, the, the original source doesn't say who he was listening to, whoever was singing he thought was singing inappropriately. It's probably Lauren Daigle. <laughs> yeah, her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother <laughs> or whatever. Right, yeah, that she was not only singing, in a, or he, I don't even know if it was a he, was singing inappropriately to the point that the congregation was terrified that they had shown up at a theater instead of a church. Wow. There was something about whatever they were doing that they thought, that music isn't appropriate here. Right? So they're already recording debates of congregations wondering if said music should even be used in the church. In fact, John Evelyn, moving a little faster down history in the 1600s, uh, this is a well-known author in English literary circles because he's valued by historians for having written a lot about contemporary life in the late 1600s. And he even thought that Henry Purcell's and if you're a classical music fiend or any sort of awareness of this, this was a this is considered one of the great composers in classical literature. He's part of the Baroque music scene. Anyway, apparently at some point, and this is fascinating to me, somebody decided to use a classical music piece in the church or whatever church it was that John Evelyn was in, and he thought that this classical Baroque music piece was, quote, better suited to a tavern or a playhouse than a church, end quote. <laughs> so he's writing about some experience he had on a Sunday morning, and he thought that this classical music piece coming into the church, not appropriate for the church. Well, and that, that's like, <laughs> I, I, I think you're, you're tapping into something here that is huge, which is, A, nothing has changed. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these are still arguments that are, happening, that, are, that are happening, but I think you're tapping into something else here. Two, which is all of these things that are being, with the exception of chance, we don't really consider chance so much music anymore, at least in the in Western culture necessarily. We consider them more like throwbacks or um, or homages to you know church history, right? But um, these were things that now, in our current arguments, we're considering holy, we're considering blessed of God, and you know, six seven hundred years ago. 800 years ago, um, we're sitting here going, um, or a few thousand years ago, we're sitting here going, yeah, um, so those things that, that those people in the 2000s think are holy, yeah, no, these are actually of the devil. 
Well, and it, and it's and this gets into a whole other topic you could do a podcast on dealing, especially in Paul's writings, because he had to write about this a lot for the early church, and the idea, does something have an intrinsic or an imposed evil or good to it? So in other words, is something at its genetic, you know, its substantive level just evil or good because of what it's made of, or do we put evil or good into something? You know, that kind of thing. As I said, that's a topic for another time, but it does, even in the history, we see that in the 18th century, even moving on with Methodism and the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley and this new group of Methodists. And remember, they get that term kind of derogatorily because they're like, oh, the Methodists, they have a method for everything. So that would have included even music. And there were some in, in the religious communities of the time that looked down at Methodism because, for one, they were using the organ in religious services. And the organ was viewed as something primarily used at the theater. So the organ was considered inappropriate for church. Yeah. <laughs> and nowadays yeah. people would look at that as that that is a church instrument. I mean, if like you walk the only into place Hillsong, you would find the organ is at a church. You know? Yeah, but if you walk into Hillsong, it's probably still inappropriate for church. Well, yeah, I mean, probably because <laughs> I mean, the genres that an organ would be used for. But I mean, you know, Methodism got a lot of crying for that, and, and it's interesting because Adventism, our particular faith community, Seventh-day Adventism, a lot of our founding members come out of the Methodist movement. So I think we bring some of that DNA with it and some of those, maybe even those debates. And I remember at one point the Church of England or the Anglican Communion, the Bishop of Exeter complained, you know, stopping by a music service that the, that the Methodist Church was doing in his area. He complained that the music being used was, quote, wild and pernicious enthusiasm. End quote. So he thought people were too moved by the music, for one. Uh, so too emotional. Yeah, they were too emotional with the music that they were using, obviously. And even when Ostley's O Savior of the World, which is a choral piece, a very famous in, in choral circles, religious choral piece was written and first used in the 1800s, they viewed it as, quote, dangerously jolly and subversively modernistic, end quote. <laughs> and this is and this is stuff that we consider ancient and and in many ways irrelevant. A lot yeah, of, exactly. In a lot of ways, but they were using arguments that I think we would recognize clearly today as almost ha having changed. But just the target of those arguments was was being used then, and we're recycling it now. So so basically, nothing historically has has, has changed as far as there being a debate in religious communities about music in the corporate setting. Well, and that's that's the point. The church has never really been able to decide. All right, there, there's a couple things that we've nailed down throughout all of history. Jesus is one of them, right? Like like our beliefs on Jesus Christ um, saving us, and man, pun not intended. Just so we're a hundred percent clear on what I just said, because um, <laughs> there's someone going. <laughs> well, I'm certainly it's been a good run. Thank you guys for joining me, uh, and don't worry if you laughed at that unintended pun. Um, I'm burning right alongside you. Yeah, so, so on a new note. On a new note. Um, pun intended. You know, we've, we've, really, um, we've really figured out what we believe about Jesus, and that, that message hasn't changed throughout years. And if it has, we've, we've cast that out, right? Main, the main line of Christianity, of Jesus saving, dying for your sins, saving you, and, um, and making a way for, for heaven, that, is, um, that hasn't changed. Maybe the way we communicate it has, but it hasn't changed itself. But we've never figured out a genre of music, an expression of music, or, or, or any sort of thing like that that, um, that is consistent throughout all of history for, for Christianity. We've never done it. There's not anything. And granted, one is a theological or, 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 or you know, 
kind of objective reality, whereas this is an artistic expression. But this is this is kind of why I bring that up. It's an artistic expression. It's meant to be subjective. And this is something that we've already shown was a, prior, a priority for, of God from the very beginning of, of humanity's history, mm-hmm. right? Like this, within just a couple, within what, two generations? Yeah. Within two generations of, of Adam and Eve, you're looking at music being, uh, being originated. And if you even want to argue, it's really from the first generation because, remember, the, the, the lifespans, we think generations, but this is just how many people being born. Adam and Eve are still alive at the time of Lakeham yeah, and, and yeah. all of these coming up. So, so the first humans already were dealing with it. Yeah. yeah, and obviously we know Lucifer, Minister of Music, all that stuff. Like We know it was important in heaven, but I, I think this was important for us to understand it's, it, it's, that it's so embedded in the framework of the human experience as well. I, I, I think that was definitely a foundation worth, worth laying in this conversation. Right, and so, I mean, and that's bringing us up to today because then you hit the 20th and then the 21st century, so basically contemporary history. Today, a lot of corporate worship, a lot of musical debate in the church is coming out of what we would call the contemporary worship scene, which really gets started, interestingly enough, in the mid-20th century is where a lot of this comes. And a lot of scholars will now say that the origins of what we would consider more contemporary praise music or whatever else is, believe it or not, not coming from the 2000s or even the 1990s, but goes back all the way to the 1960s and 70s, where there's really two movements that come in, which is the coffee bar evangelism in 1960s Britain, which was basically a group of of, of musicians that thought that they could reach, interestingly enough, more young people by going to the pubs and where they were because the church was already losing influence. The Anglican church was losing influence in England at the time in Wales. But also at that, then in the 1970s, America kind of playing catch up with the, with British culture, I guess you had something called the Jesus movement, which was really this idea where a lot of even, well, evangelicalism was, was really kind of becoming a thing in the 70s and 80s. So I, I don't know if we can call it evangelicalism at that point. But, but a lot of mainline, that's probably a better term for it, mainline Protestant denominations and stuff were, were struggling with the idea of, of revitalizing services and, and, and catching hold of a lot of new people that were coming in from such evangelists like Billy Graham and the Great Crusades yeah. of the 1970s and this kind of stadium evangelism and this idea of how are we, we going to contextualize the gospel in a way that can help reach new audiences in a, in a society just like in Britain and England and Wales and now in, in North America where people are less and less growing up in religious contexts, right? Or they're not just automatically Christian. They don't just wake up and on a Saturday or Sunday morning they're automatically at church. You know, they just do not do that. And basically they were, they were already grappling with the beginnings of what most of us would call postmodernism before it was a thing. Yeah. Right, or the you know things we argue about with Generation Z now and things like that, or millennials or postmoderns or that kind of thing. I mean, they were dealing with that, and, and so that music kind of comes up. It, it finds its its genesis in the its genesis there. It, it basically starts maturing in the 1990s with the Wow movement and contemporary mm-hmm. Christian music in that sense, where you start have media where it's starting to spread. And then really that brings us to today where modern music is being, worship music is being driven a lot, not just by those who are fighting to either regain what they view as earlier forms of it, but a lot of churches, a lot of it now in modern music is driven by consumption is what's driving the debate. And what I mean by that is that it's, it's really being driven by who is producing the content. 
And a lot of that comes to really two big churches, which I'm sure most people have actually heard of, whether they've really put it much thought or not. One is Hillsong in Australia. I know we were talking about this earlier today. And in this kind of this idea that a music group basically started a church based around certain styles of music, and then that has continued to feed as a, as a center of influence for that genre. Yes. Obviously. Hillsong and then Bethel, which is a big mega church in Southern California, I believe it is. And and that idea, and we call them basically global worship brands. I think mm-hmm. it's probably is the best way we would put that. And and so today, evangelicalism, a lot of Protestantism, even Roman Catholicism, these kinds of things, they have a lot of other sources beside the, or and even beyond their local congregation to look for ideas about worship and musical and experiential authority. And this is kind of where I would cap off the history section, is it's interesting, all the way up until basically now, the 21st century, music corporate worship was debated at the local church level. Whether you're three monks getting murdered for changing chants, or you're somebody reporting about the salacious and horrible person singing in your French church, or you know you went to a Methodist church and the Bishop of Exeter is just ticked that you know they're being it's the playhouse and the theater. All of these debates, you'll notice, all were coming out of local church context. And now in the 21st century, we've moved to the point where I don't think actually the lo- and this is just me, but that the local congregation is where most of this debate is actually taking place. That congregations as a whole are actually losing influence on the conversation of music and corporate worship. I I actually do believe there's another set of congregations that are having more influence than our local church, and that would be the concert hall, the Christian conference, the megachurch, public culture, and the online music industry. So basically, consumer culture is... That, that's, that's what's driving it. Yeah, now. consumer culture is now yeah. driving music on a on a local level, which I think there is some danger to that for sure. Right. Um, like, like there, there's I'm real not trying pros, to speak to its yeah. danger. Or no, not. there's I'm real just saying pros that's and cons. Music, up, that's yeah. where the debate is finding its influence now. It's not the local church context where a lot of this debate is happening. Now, I think part of that, and we could speak to that. I think part of that's because the church has abdicated its responsibility to be a center of music in the fine arts and to talk about it, and so we've kind of given it up to those centers. But yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I run into to young adults or other people where they'll say, well, I really enjoyed the worship at XYZ conference. Yeah. Notice they're never talking about their local church. They're always like, I, I went together to some big Christian organization or some mega church or some whatever, and, and, and that's where they're now setting their priorities for, ah, they have now shown me what corporate worship should be, and they're trying to drag it back to the local church. It's not the local church trying to push it or, or even you know, evangelize it elsewhere. It's kind of reversed. It's now no longer emanating from the local church. It's being taken from elsewhere and brought to the local church. We've kind of mm-hmm. flipped roles. And that really brings us to, that's the historical sketch where we are today. Gotcha. So let's, let's transition here. We're in kind of our final, uh, final part of this episode. We've, we've, we've kind of seg- segmented this into three parts this conversation. And I think this is going to be the part that's the most conversational between the two of us. Because yeah. we just had to lay a lot of groundwork here. Um, so, Henry, thank you for your diligent work and research in that. Um, it's incredible to see this, and and here's why. Um, I almost I was thinking about this the other day when I was driving home. I almost wish I was a nihilist for care for like for meaningless things. In other <laughs> words, like I wish I was a nihilist for when you think back to high school, right? And you go, why was I ever upset about that? It didn't matter, right? Why or or even college? Why was I upset about that? It didn't matter, right? Now that I'm here, that doesn't matter with this perspective, right? 
I wish I was a nihilist in that moment to think, yeah, this doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Like, not be so affected by it. Not make it such a big deal, because in the grand scheme of things, this is not as important as I'm making it out to be. And, and so I want to balance what I'm about to say very carefully, because music is as important as we make it out to be. However, if historical and biblical precedence has shown us anything, it's that the style and genre of music is the pointless thing <laughs> to, to, yeah. to a certain extent. Um, well, no, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you might have noticed, even in that very brief biblical overview when we started the podcast, I couldn't present a single passage or verse to you about genres of music. That might actually shock people because there's a lot of debate in the church is what is an acceptable or, you know, a Christian genre or what is something that's appropriate for the church. But in all of Scripture, I, I mean, I could bet my life savings on it, which I don't really have any right now because I just bought a house. But the point no risk, but yeah, no risk. Don't worry. If he loses this bet, you get a house. Oh, dear. Yeah, but no, that ups the stakes, but that's the point. You cannot find anywhere in Scripture where God lists acceptable genres to himself. No, there's no way. I mean, you're talking about a, a, a wide variety of, of instruments being used in Scripture, and you don't have any idea of, of what those actually kind of sounded like. And, many, and, and in many cases, I think God works within the, the confines of the culture and time period he's in. So even if you want to argue that we can find out what kind of music they listen to, we do know what kind of music was played. Because to some extent in history, we can go back and kind of deduce what music may have sounded like from different time periods. Uh, that, may, it, that doesn't mean that the music in this time period was the only acceptable music. It just means that that was the best they were able to do with the means that they had in their culture. Or it's what their culture had a preference for. Exactly. Like, there's no... <laughs> There, there is no objective theological basis for, um, for which genre is the one that is going to be in heaven, is the one that you should listen to on a daily basis, or is the one that you should even sing in church together. Yeah, it takes a lot of eisegesis to try and argue for a specific genre. And I say that as someone who, yes, has my own preferences, and you know, if I was living in a selfish world where it was all about me, there would be certain things I would prefer in church and not prefer there. But if I'm being honest to the biblical narrative, there is nothing scriptural I can base that on. You have to, you have to be taking passages dealing with things that have nothing to do with music and try and impose them on the conversation of music rather than something that you know is dealing with music and be able to extrapolate something from that. Yeah. I think, I think at this point for me, especially with this, this conversation has framed a lot more of certainty in my own mind. Honestly, it has. Because um, I think for me, I'm kind of done with the contemporary versus hymnal, contemporary versus traditional music argument. I, I, like at this point, to me, we've been arguing for it throughout all of history. We're not getting any further on it. In fact, we're using the exact same arguments that we've used throughout history. You literally just read actual quotes from people. <laughs> that sound like stuff yeah. you could read if, today. <laughs> if anything, we've gotten a little bit more civil in that we don't kill people over it, at least well, that I know, I, we probably uh, assassinate people's characters. Yeah, that's true. We we yeah, that's end up on a list somewhere yeah. about being an apostate, whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, but but ultimately, like, I I I do kind of feel like I'm a nihilist. Like, it it doesn't matter. Like, this doesn't ultimately matter. I think it matters that you're intentional about what you are listening to, 
right? Not, not just aimlessly wandering through life. I think intentionality is something that's huge to the Christian experience. But I don't think it's something that's worth um, like fretting over and freaking out over and spending all this time and energy in. Um, I, I'm not going to go to the point of saying it's a distraction because for many people, music is not a distract music it's is an important part of the human experience it is we've just it's yeah. a vital part of the human experience but i think this is where uh this this kind of comes into uh where paul talks about in philippians work out your own salvation uh through fear and trembling right this idea of music definitely plays a role in that because it is a part of your human experience it's a part of how you connect with god how you worship him and how you praise him so i think you work it out for yourself and figure out where am i on this spectrum what what works here but also with the third principle that we said in the bible which is not only how does this work for me, but then how can I sacrificially love someone else and look out for the interests of others by the music that I'm engaging in or the music that I'm worshiping with in church? Yeah, I mean, I agree with your nihilism perspective because we've almost gone to the other extreme. Well, not almost. We have. We, we've basically turned music into an idol. Not basically. It is. It is turned into an idol. And the problem with idols is that they push out everything else of importance if you worship yeah. them long enough. And one of the things about that that I think is no matter what your genre of preference is or whether you disagree with us and think, no, 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 I think I can prove from the Bible that, you know, this, you know, a hymn or a praise song is all that's acceptable or whatever or not. I think one of the saddest things is the fact that the debate has reached the point where almost we have the, the, uh, the converse opposite of nihilism. And that is for many churches today, music is the sum total of worship. Yeah. In other words, when we yep. talk about worship, we think it's just song service. We've now stripped out everything else and don't realize that, well, first of all, I mean, that's, again, that gets back to the secular sacred again. Worship is actually a way of living life. It's not just a service. But, but yeah, like you said, that music now is the sum total of what a lot of churches are focused on. If we can get the music right, then everything's good. And so you can have people that, okay, we've got hymns or we've got the praise song, and wow, our church has the right kind of music, and yet the preaching sucks. Like there's no biblical substance to it whatsoever, or there's no prayer, or there's no involvement in the community, or nothing. But we've won the worship wars because we have the music we wanted up there. We almost made it way too important. Yeah. No, that, like, and actually, we so Tony and I actually did an episode on this. Uh, wow, thirty episodes, thirty-five episodes, or thirty-two episodes ago. Um, what is worship? We actually did that, and that's one of our top downloaded ones as well, um, where we 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 address that very issue of. Praise is the act of giving praise to God, and we do that through song, we do that through prayer, we do that through conversation and Bible study many times. But worship is the way you live your life. It's, the, it's your life lived in response to who God is and how you've experienced Him, how you have a relationship with Him and, and, and His interaction in your life. Worship is a very holistic idea, and praise is a very segmented, focused uh, part of that holistic idea. And music definitely is is a part of both of those things, but it's not it's not a we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, is what we're doing. Um, it's not. It shouldn't be the sum total of everything we consider important. But at the same time, we have to resist the temptation to to be nihilist about it because what we sing or what we hear does matter. Yeah. In, in a in a corporate context, right? I mean. Music is a language, so it has to communicate something. So the question then becomes less about what is the medium of that communication to what is it communicating. I think that's actually a debate we don't, we don't have as much, at least from my personal experience. 
in, in our personal faith community, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and, and even in the Southern Baptist Communion earlier in my life, and in other churches that I, I've been in, I think sometimes we spend so much time fighting over, you know, what genre or whatever, that none of us are actually having an important debate about what does that hymn or that praise song communicate? Because, for example, I have, I mean, most people probably already guess, I, I come from a more, I mean, just because of my personal preferences, I like classical music. So obviously I, I tend to spend more of my time listening to things that would be considered more traditional yeah. or, or more maybe people think, oh, he's probably a, a big hymn lover instead of modern praise music. And I do listen to both. But yeah, if I was honest with people, if I had to pick and choose, if you looked at my iTunes library, there's a whole lot more on the symphonic side in orchestral side than, than, you know, modern groups you would hear on the radio. I just, I enjoy it, but I don't listen to that actively. And so, but that, even that being said though, I, there's a lot of stuff. Sometimes I have debates with in, in churches, like with hymnals and stuff where they'll pick a hymn and we go to sing it and I will pay attention to the, you know, the words go figure what's going with the melody. And I'll be like, was this guy on acid when he wrote this? Like, yeah, this isn't, biblical at all <laughs> like you know i'll read it i'll be like this isn't this doesn't work right you know and, and it's funny because the first debate people will usually have is well modern praise music's shallow and it's not communicating anything but at the same time there's again nothing has changed in history there is a lot of hymns that are shallow and not communicating anything and, you know so again I, th- I think the debate would be wiser placed on on the substance of what we're singing and what we're doing even more so than the sound to it yeah, well, and, and yeah, and I, I like, I'm one who likes contemporary worship a lot more, um, and I, I can even look at, I've done the, I've done the communicating thing a, a little bit in personal experience, because I love Elevation Worship. Um, I love their albums, and I remember listening, if you, if you listen to one of their first earlier albums, not the one with, um, I can't remember, uh, Give Me Jesus, not the one without, not the one of Give Me Faith, but the one after that, their first full-length album. You listen to that and then you go through all of their albums what you begin to see is a is a shift and you can almost watch elevations like their music group you can almost watch their growth in christ through their albums because their first mm-hmm. album is very i i i me 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 mm-hmm. in relation to god and as they progress in their albums it becomes more and more about him and less about them and there is that idea that is communicated holistically across their albums that yeah jesus saved me and then as I follow him, I begin doing more that is selfless. And I, I transition yeah. from selfish to selfless. Um, and, and you can definitely see that as a theme across their albums. I don't even think that was an intentional theme. I think that was just right, a natural... expressing what's going on yes. with them, music being that expressive form. If I had to narrow down this conversation to one, one sentence, I, <laughs> I always would say, like, music is the most important thing that doesn't matter. <laughs> right like 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 music matters it matters but it doesn't that, like, that's um it, it matters but it doesn't in that it, it is incredibly important it is it is a, a valuable part of your experience but um we get hung up on the parts of it that don't really matter and then ignore the parts that do yep. so for example going to what you were talking about with their transition where it was becoming more of a corporate identity and song versus an individualistic identity where everything was centered around the self versus the community. It reminds me, I think just a couple weeks ago, actually, 
I was watching a sermon on YouTube, and I think it was David Ashrick that was giving it at his church in in Australia, the Kingscliff Church. So I I don't have a link, but I'm sure you could look that up on YouTube. And he was making that point too that, and I agreed with, I resonated with this point where he said one of his biggest complaints about modern contemporary music, and the same could be said about a lot of hymns and and more quote unquote traditional music too, is the idea that you come together in a corporate setting and sing only about yourself. Yeah. That he's like, there's more than you in the congregation. And yet everything's me, 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 I, 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 I. And, that, and that's fine if you were the only one singing it. Maybe you're in the car and you're singing that, whatever. But you've now come the one time a week for a lot of people, the religious service is the only time that you're with other believers in mass doing something. And the whole community is expected now to lift their joint praise to God. And it's all a bunch of individuals ignoring everybody else around them being like, no, it's really all about me. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, it's, and he was like, that drives me crazy. And I was like, Again, that's so true. The focus of so much, we're ignoring what does matter, the substance, and fighting over that which doesn't matter. It's just the immaterial and the preference. Like we're trying to discount music based on where its instruments came from or what they were used for in the past. We're trying to, like this is what what gets me. In In a faith where Jesus is doing everything he can, finding every loophole he can to get us into heaven rather than keep us out, we're finding every loophole we can to keep music out, to keep music we don't like out, um, and and trying to ban as much as possible, and and it's really sad to me because here's the other thing that I think is is communicated, and this is um, kind of as we we're winding down here, but um, I really want to communicate this one thing, and I really hope that if you're a musician, if you're an artist of any type, um, I hope you understand this one thing, especially from the biblical portion of of this segment. Um, what you do the creativity that you've been blessed with, that you've been given by God, the talents that you have, that is absolutely of the utmost value to God. Yes. What you do, what you create matters. I don't care what the content content is or what your style is. It matters, it's valuable, and God loves you for it. And we need a renaissance of sold out, again, what we're talking about, the biblical principles, those with a deep abiding relationship with Jesus and yet also with artistic talent. We need that renaissance, and I'm just speaking, I mean, I think in Christianity, Western Christianity as a whole, but especially in the Seventh-day Adventist communion, which is our particular faith group, mm-hmm. we need a resurgence of the arts again in church. This should be a center for creative passion in that, because if nothing else, no matter what your preferred genre or where you fall on the worship wars, so to speak, I think one of the big drawbacks, again, we fight over what doesn't matter and then ignore what does, is that a lot of modern worship no matter the genre, is exploring really only a small section of the emotional bandwidth of humanity. Mm. Uh, I, I feel like we're missing out on a lot because we're, 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 we're kind of hovering in the middle of religious or human experience, and we're missing some of the things that people really struggle with. I mean, we're not dealing with lament and loss or even exuberant joy, right? We, ju- we just kind of stay in the middle, and it sounds like a classic rerun of a pop station, which there's nothing wrong with pops, but I'm, I'm just saying there's so much more out there, just like there's so many more personalities and other things. Out there. There's a lot more to the Christian experience than just, I will praise you, you know, or, you know, it is well with my soul. What about when it's not well with your soul? What about the book of Job? Okay, what about, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, the church has hurt you. What about, I mean, when you read Psalms, I mean, Psalms, the book of Psalms was really five books. When you look at it, it's actually five books. That was basically the Jewish hymnal, which is fascinating. That's, that's a whole other topic for another time. But if you look at that, there's five books that make up the collection of the Psalms. 
And it's five books for a reason because there's the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the Jews would select Psalms according to which book they were in. Hmm. It's just a fascinating study yeah. to then read Genesis in the first book of Psalms and then Exodus in the second book yeah, of Psalms. That's and it's, it's fascinating to go through that and see the different experiences. But again, those experiences were relevant to what they were going through because they're speaking about being in the desert or being saved by Egypt or the fact that Israel now going into captivity or they're having issues. Or whatever, not, but they, there was a wide range of experiences. Some of these psalms, I think, if we wrote modern songs like this, people of all genres would freak out.com and act lstupido.org because they would be like, <laughs> they, would, they would be like, what in the world? Like, David's got some psalms where he's literally so angry. He's talking about wishing he could go back in time and kill the posterity of certain people or like put like liquid chemical in their body and like make them be on fire from the inside out and like liquefy at their yeah. innards. I mean, you know, because he's talking about anger. He's talking about wrestling with frustration, with failure, with failed expectations, with, but then there's others like great joy and love and ecstasy and whatever that, and, and all sorts of music in the church right now, I think is in a very narrow bandwidth of the human experience. And I think that needs to change. I think the church would be better for it if, if we broadened the avenue in which we, we brought God and musical experience to the human experience. Yeah, and I think I think I think the overall thing that we're claiming here, or we're hoping, or the charge that we're saying is, we want the local congregation to reclaim the art and control yeah. of, of of the arts, because right now consumer culture does that. So we have one specific narrow band of music, because that's the ba- that's the band that sells. Yeah. Um. So and that that's the thing. Art is very economically driven right now instead of creatively driven. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, what you just said gives me a new appreciation for the very song that I referenced earlier, Judith by a Perfect Circle. This song where he literally, he literally curses out, uh, it's, it's as if he's talking to his mom, and he, he literally says, F your God, F your Christ. And then he says, praise the one who left you broken down and paralyzed. And he's screaming this. Yeah. And there's this anger, there's this rage, there's this frustration, and it's not even at God. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost sounds like the proverb where he said, "Better is the house of lament than the house yeah. of partying." And He's joy. so yeah. it, it, like even if it is at God, what's better, shouting at God or not talking to Him at all? At all, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not saying that the, I suddenly want Judith by a perfect circle played in church. I'm just saying, like, it gives you when you understand music from this intrinsic value point of view, then suddenly you can appreciate almost all of it to some yeah. degree. You can appreciate the person. That and and what is being communicated from the music that's being played and performed? Yeah, well, exactly, and that and that's what I'm saying. I think I think when the church reaches a point again where where we're doing well biblically, we're and experientially together with 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 music, we're going to realize that it's going to take. If we do music right, everyone in church is going to be uncomfortable at some point with the various music that is employed week by week. Yeah, I think that should be, yeah. if we're doing it right, interestingly enough, I think music should not just be totally uncomfortable all the time, but but I think it, it, it should stretch us, it should challenge us, it should make us think about more things than what we came in for. I mean, I think, I think it's valuable, I think it's valuable to have things that, that we don't like that make us uncomfortable, just like there should be prayers and things that we don't like and make us uncomfortable because we're, we're challenging with stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's because we're not just our culture and our society and our experience and whatever. There's a this is a historical and global faith, and all of that needs to be represented in the music that we're communicating. 
Absolutely. I could not agree more. Henry, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I really do think this will pass episode 40. Absolutely. Um, but let's see if I can title <laughs> we'll it well. Um, but Henry, this has been awesome. I really, I honestly, this has pushed me forward a lot in my thinking towards this. Um, and to our and listener, I hope this has done the same for you, wherever you are. I hope that you, if you are creative, that you have found some value, some renewed sense of purpose in what you're doing. Um, and I hope this has given all of us a sense of perspective. Uh, I think, Henry, even in your studying of this, this has given you some new perspective Absolutely. as well. So, And that's what this is. It's challenged us. It's stretched us. Um, and I've, I'm fascinated by it. So, Henry. Yeah, and that would, that would be really my challenge to our church and our faith community today is I want to see us reclaim the musical debate to be a place where our church is spending time arguing how they can merge the musical and the poetic and the theological together to make something that brings glory to God and to our fellow man. Amen. I think that's a great way to end this one. So thank you guys so much for listening. You can find all of our contact info in the episode description. I'm also going to try and find that David Ashrick sermon, see if I can, I can put it in there as well. But if it's not there, it just means I couldn't find it. Um, but we want to thank you guys so much for listening. We made it a full year of Absurdity episodes. Woo! We have done it. We missed one week, but I had two bonus episodes this year. Actually, three bonus episodes this year. So I'm not even, we, we've done, we've pushed out, that means 54 episodes of Absurdity have been pushed out this That's year. That's fantastic. Which is man. incredible. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey. Does and that mean you, 54 different rants of Tony? Yes, that's basically what that means. Um, <laughs> I want someone to do a super cut. Um, but thank you for being on this journey. I am amazed at the growth of this podcast community. Uh, amazed at the topics we've been able to cover, the things that I've learned in this year. So if you want if you want to help us out and be a part of this journey with us uh, on an intentional level, not just listening, but also giving, you can find us at patreon.com slash absurditypodcast. Um, and that's the way, if you're looking to um, to support something and support someone who's doing something creative, um, that's the best way to help me out because it helps keep the lights on. It helps us upgrade our gear and figure out exactly how we can make the best quality podcast for you. So thank you guys so much for listening, for your support, and we will see you in 2019. Today's episode of Absurdity is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to www.thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology. Today's episode of Absurdity is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. To check them out, go to www.thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology.